Father, you are the altogether lovely one. You are the one we live for and from. And at our best moments, our truest moments, you are the very air we breathe. Amen. Scriptures are taken from John's Gospel, the 17th chapter, and from Matthew, the 6th chapter. The first verse of John 17 reads, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And down in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the, before the creation of the world. In Matthew 6, the ninth verse, words that we have already prayed together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We are in a series on the practices of the Christian life, and today in our very short meditation, we're going to look at the Christian practice of prayer. And we're going to do that, as you've already heard, by looking at portions of two different prayers that Jesus gives us in the Bible, the one he gives to us and the one he prays himself. So our name for the Lord's Prayer is perhaps a misnomer. I've long often thought it is better called the model prayer or the disciples prayer. By contrast, John 17 is perhaps the longest, most vivid, best, if we can say that, example of a prayer that Jesus actually prayed in his own life. But both prayers, interestingly to me, as I put them together for the first time in my own study, start at precisely the same place. John 17 and Matthew 6, 9 open with Father. Apparently the first thing Jesus wants prayers to know is that the God he is bringing his followers to, the one he is teaching his disciples to pray to, is a father. This, then, is the first and most basic lesson that I suggest is meant to transform our praying. The relationship Jesus always had with the Father, he now is sharing with us. Our basic human instinct, our generic understanding of God is almighty, all-powerful, as a potentate, as transcendent and great. And in the biblical and Christian notion of God, that, of course, has a portion, but it doesn't stay there or stop there. In the Muslim observance of Ramadan, there is one night, the holiest night of that observance of the entire year, called the Night of Power, in which this great remote Distant deity comes closer, not close, but closer. And even then he is ministered to in whatever ministrations he chooses to make. 
with humankind by angels, but it is a time, the time, out of the entire year when Muslims may stay up all night in order to think they might have a better access, a better possibility to his mercy and generosity and forgiveness. What an amazing gift that Jesus teaches us, challenges us, actually commands us to pray to the great God as Father. Jesus is telling us the astonishing news that for all those who accept the provision made through his Son, God is to be known as Father and in no other way. Jim Packer wrote in his devotional classic, Knowing God, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they don't understand Christianity very well at all. What great good news. My earliest memories of life itself is holding my father's hand and forcing him to hold mine uh, in the air, his hand unsupported in the void in space and my hand creeping out through the crib. I remember holding my father's hand as we would walk to our garden in the city where he taught me how to tend crops. I remember holding my father's hand on the same spot, the same site which had then uh, become a rest home as he passed to be with the Lord. What good news it is that the primary lesson in prayer Jesus has to teach his disciples is that praying is openness to God, is experiencing God, is holding the Father's hand. In prayer we are given this great gift of being lifted into the eternal life that the Son has with the Father eternally. If God is from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, then in prayer, in Christian prayer, we are being invited into the ongoing life of God where the Father gives all that he has to the Son except that he's the Father. And the Son gives all that he has to the Father except that he's the Son. And the Spirit dances around and in between and with them, Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal community of love. This is the heart of prayer, Jesus teaches. Praising the Father as he did, asking the Father for things as he did, depending on the Father as he did. Interestingly, both prayers move from that identical opening point to an identical secondary point. John 17 says, Father, the time has come, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And in the disciples' prayer, the model prayer, our Father, hallowed be thy name. Both prayers go to glory. Now, of course, we need to be careful here. There is a distinct, a discreet sense in John 17, where John speaks of the hour which is his, it is his time to take, and his vocation to glorify. Uh, have you ever been at the bedside of someone who has passed? I imagine 
Many of you have, and that's one of the privileges of pastors. I have been at many such bedsides. And at that time, in those moments, people, if they can speak, are not interested in talking about the weather or incidentals. They summon their strength and their energy to speak about what is most important of all in life to them. And when Jesus turns to that time with his disciples, he turns to this theme of the fatherhood of God and the importance of the task of glorifying that will be his and which he invites us to participate in. Hallowed be your name. We don't pray the exact prayer Jesus prays, he says, Lord, I am ready to take the cup. I am ready to be Savior of the world. But at this broader point, all of the great prayers of the Bible hit a similar theme. There are two in Ephesians. The first chapter, Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened to know the riches of the glory that is yours. In chapter 3, he prays, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, If you go back to the Old Testament, Moses prays, show me your glory. All of the great prayers, regularly prayer for a deeper experience of, knowledge of, sight of the living God. One of my favorites is Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, the 18th verse. He prays, and it's a little bit difficult to translate. Probably any translation you pick up will have this verb a little bit differently. One of my favorites is we who gaze on the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Some of those translations that I've used the word gaze are behold or reflect or contemplate. The reason it's difficult to translate is that it means literally to gaze deeply into a mirror. If you were to turn to the person on your right and left and uh, gaze at them that way as you would gaze at yourself in the mirror, it probably wouldn't be very long before they'd slug you. So go ahead and try it. No, 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 no. Uh, but you get the idea of, of eyes literally, literally pouring over pores. A gaze which looks intently and deeply and is transformed by it. Uh, If you want to grow in courage, if you want to grow in humility, don't try and be a taskmaster to, to yourself. I need to be better and I need to try harder. Paul says we are going to be transformed by gazing into his glory. Like many of you, uh, I'm a rather casual but serious uh, appreciator of cinema. This week, I came across a name I had never seen before. Have any of you heard of Louise Rayner? She's 104 years old and is alive today in Eaton Square in the same building Vivian Leigh once lived in. She was the Academy Award winner for Best Actress Two years in a row, 1936 and 1937. She lived on the MGM lot in the same mansion with Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo and Norma Shearer. But you've heard of all those names, but may not unless you're a real aficionado. Like me, you've heard of Louise Rayner. I 
came across an interview of hers. Uh, you haven't heard of her because the studio came up to her and told her what they, she needed to do with the rest of her career, what uh, she would be doing with it, and she stood up to them. The last time she ever saw Louis B. Mayer, he looked at her and said, Listen, we made you, and we can kill you. And the last thing she said to Louis B. Mayer is, Mr. Mayer, you didn't make me. God made me. And walked out of the room. I could translate that to say, if you want to get rid of my film career, fine, you can do that. But it doesn't ruin me. I have a self and I have a God who made me. Now, that's clearly a theistic statement. I don't know if Louise Rayner was a Christian or not, but in doing that, she evidenced right, right at the heart of what is at the priority of praise in Christian prayer. It's understanding and giving God all the worth he is due, understanding the worth that he invests in us. So much to say, I'm not going to get to anything but this one point, but a smaller point, but interesting to me, is the studying these two texts, I... I reflected on the different motives in prayer that Jesus has and that we seem naturally to have. We seem to pray, don't we, naturally, more fervently and more energetically when we're insecure about the future, when we don't know what's going to happen, when we want to, when we want to weigh into the outcome. But if you study these texts, what makes, you know, if we know what's going to happen, probably our fervency, why, why bother praying about it at all? What makes our fervency decrease seems to make Jesus' fervency increase. He knows what the future holds. He doesn't look so much to change the future as to find God in the future, to deepen it in a nutshell. We look to God for medicine, and Jesus looks to his Heavenly Father for food, for nourishment, for the sustenance of his life. Perhaps the best way to understand the glory of God, which could overwhelm and threaten us, is to see it in story form. The first five verses of John 17 are really a story. They are a story of of why God came into the earth. It is because we, we tried to harbor all of the glory for ourselves. We tried to become our own gods. So... In the story, Scripture tells it is the gospel, the great good news. It says that for love of us, Christ lost his glory, that we might gain it. That's the picture that we're gathering around to celebrate this morning. And by gazing at it, Jesus promises we can be transformed. One point... I want to leave us with this as we meditate on this table. It is the placement and priority of praise in prayer. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. The model prayer goes on with important portions. There is confession. Forgive us our trespasses. There is Submission, not my will, 
but thy will be done. And there is petition. Stunning position. Give me this day, not this month, but my needs, my daily bread, maybe my wants. It is astonishing. Put in its right priority. Jesus teaches us to storm heaven. But only after praise has been placed first. If our deepest problems are our orientations with ourselves and with others, they are only put in proper place when praise has been put first. If you don't praise the living God, you won't praise others. If you don't praise the living God, you won't be able to trust others. But if you praise Him, you will be full enough and rich enough and secure enough and clear enough to be able to encourage others. If you have a place of security, which is strong enough, one of, I have about 20 times the notes that I'm going to share with you, but one other reflection I'll put in. I notice how many times Jesus seems, not, not in this particular prayer, but how many times he goes to the mountaintops. I'm anticipating going to uh, Israel, as Glenn has shared with you, in just a few weeks now. And in my one other time there, I was so struck by the geography and how the geography relates to spirituality, how many high places and open places there are. And I thought of Jesus going and spending the night praying on mountaintops. So many times in the Psalms there is uh, those resources that we go to the holy mountain to pray to God. And I reflected on what is it about mountaintops and prayer. And I think it has something to do with security, their strength and the clarity of of sight that we can see from there and the majesty that is revealed to us there. Worship God in the holy mountain. All other things, our petitions, our confession, our submission, fall in place when we put a priority on praise, the God who is the Father. Adore God, accept Him, acknowledge Him, then and only then, ask him. Father, prayer opens heavens. In prayer, we hear the voice of the finished work of Christ. He has completed the work you gave him to do. On the cross, he says, it is completed. It is finished. The more we gaze on not Jesus as an example, but on Jesus Christ as Savior. The more we gaze not on you in the abstract, but you sending your Son. You losing your Son so you can gain us as your children. The more we see that, the more we begin to see glory. That's when your love radiates. That's when your mercy shines. That's when and only then we're fine, we're able to stand up in the world's eye and say nothing need control us anymore. We want to be transformed into your likeness by seeking and seeing your glory. 
I ask, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, everybody in this room, every one of us, that you'd open our eyes to see what it means for us personally and what we have to do. Help us to begin as we gather around this table of your grace. In Jesus' name.